My bad. We're live right right now. We're live. We're live right now. Then day. So how's how's everybody doing? Uh, it's Saturday morning. Not usual faces because Hassan is off uh, doing something in whatever Hassan does in the UK. So I have Eamon uh, here. Eamon, did I get it right? You got it right. He's a, he's a fellow fellow Maryland enjoyer, fellow Maryland fan. Absolutely. We actually, great crazily enough, I I'm from a place in Maryland. It's called Manchester. I feel comfortable saying that now that all my family's moved out of Manchester. There's like what. 2,500, 3,000 people there. It's super, super small town. Uh, that's where I grew up. That's where um, my mother grew, uh, was raised. And and Eamon's actually been there, and he actually grew up in a, in an adjacent area to me. So it's kind of crazy. So he has his his Maryland flag back there, which I appreciate. I have uh, my, my Maryland Guinness that I keep back here. I don't have a Maryland flag on me. My, my wife... Uh, my wife and my in-laws uh, hate Maryland. They think it's the worst place on earth, which I I don't I don't know why. They 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 say the people are rude and stuff, but I mean my my mother-in-law is from like uh, the Boston area, so I'm like, how? Okay, you're from Boston, and you think Maryland people are rude? Come on now. Yeah, that's that's a bit that's a bit perverse. Exactly, exactly. What? Oh, come on. What's that flag? It's it's the best flag. You know, only only Catholic flag. In, in in all of all of the flags in America, and you guys don't know it. Come on, it's actually so it's the Maryland flag, Maryland state flag. It is still uh, by Maryland state law required if you're publicly displaying the flag officially to have a cross on the top of the pole. Only state in the union. So true, so true. Yeah, yeah that is the uh, the crest of Calvert and Carroll. And if you guys don't yep. know Carroll, I think he was the only uh, – what, what, okay, so there were brothers. One of them was a bishop, and the other one was uh, one of the founding fathers. Yeah. And yeah. Carroll, Carroll was the only – And okay, Charles so, Carroll, I think, is the yes. signer of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, yeah I think Charles signed. And I mean, I, I, I think I've heard that they were terrible Catholics, so I don't know why we're uh, bragging about it. Um, but yeah, I think John was the bishop, and then Charles, uh, the the county that I grew up in, was named after him, Carroll County. Yeah, that sounds right. Yep. So before uh, we get started, I just want to kind of uh, shout out Amon's stuff. So he uh, runs this website right here, Christian Renaissance Movement. They have a lot of stuff. You got it. Got a lot, a lot of fun of stuff. stuff. Yeah, uh, Amoris Laetitia. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yes. Mass intentions. That's what I wanted to tell you guys about. So, yeah, please. So, would would you like to explain that for everybody? Yeah. So, I live in a clerical college uh, in Rome. If you're not familiar with kind of the Roman education system in general, um, there are universities and institutes, Athenaea schools, basically, where you just go to class, uh, and then there are colleges. So, like, if you have a friend who's at the North American College, for example, uh, he lives there and might have some in-house formation, and then he goes out to school somewhere else. So it's totally different from the normal experience in the U.S. Um, I live in a clerical house. It's mostly for third world priests, though there are some laymen, there's a bunch of Dominicans, uh, but kind of the mission of the house is serving uh, third world priests who don't have a national college. So there's some guys from Tanzania, a lot of Nigerians, um, South Sudanese, you know, some some places where 
you know, their annual stipend from their bishop might be like less than a hundred dollars uh, while they're living here, you know. Um, so I'm looking to help them by, you know, paying them to be priests and celebrate mass for your intentions. So there are a lot of guys asking me in the house uh, if I can help, you know, get them some intention. So if you're interested, uh, drop me a note. There's the contact tab. They'd be open for Gregorian masses, which is super cool. Actually, if we can arrange it, we can actually go to uh, the monastery where that started, and we'll try to get a mass celebrated on that altar for you. Um, so that's pretty cool to be able to do, and you'd, you'd help people out who uh, you know are kind of strapped for cash. And Rome isn't a cheap city; it's not super expensive, but you know you can't do much on a hundred dollars throughout a year. So. Anyway, that's the pitch. The guys would be super appreciated, and uh, so would I. So just uh, hit me up in the contact tab. Exactly, and it's Lent. It's Lent right now. So all it's that, Lent. all that food, all that food you're not eating right now, because I know, I know you guys, you're not, you're not going to McDonald's, you're not going to Burger King. You guys, you guys have some extra money now for ten bucks. Well, ten euros, which is what, like yeah, 11, ten euros, twelve dollars. Yeah, yeah. For for the price, uh, what would that be? Probably like, be like twelve. Maybe bucks. maybe a, uh, a large a large bougie Big Mac. coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very bougie coffee. A large Big Mac meal. You can you can help out these third world priests because you know because you know the, these guys a, absolutely amazing work because they're trust me their Catholic churches are are a heck of a lot better than our Catholic churches. They are they are hearing a lot more confessions. They are um, sanctifying a lot more faithful. They, they, they're, they're really um, doing some amazing work. So getting them educated so they can um, do catechetical work in their own language, in their, uh, in, in their, among their own people. They can write uh, theology for, for better training, uh, for, for better resources. I mean, we're, we're in the English-speaking world, we just, we, we're just we're glutted for resources. We have too many resources. Uh, we, there's too much stuff to choose from. I mean, like if, if you go out uh, it, it, and people want to try to look for uh, an English catechism, uh, let's say, uh, besides the catechism of the Catholic Church, there, there's like 20 different options. Or you want to pray in office. There's like 15 different options. They, they, they might uh, or, or like even read read the Bible. There's like 200 different options. These guys, they don't have that stuff. So uh yeah they have to do it themselves you you know it's it's ground up so exactly and the vitality the vitality in some of these places you know the pope was just in where uh south sudan and uh the congo right you know so you just kind of take a look at those images and those stories and it's like oh yeah that's that's some of these guys like normal pastoral experience um you know and there's a couple of guys in the house who are you know from nigeria one in, in particular is from the north uh where it's kind of like you you just kind of know they're the real deal because uh, they're signing up to be out out in the bush uh where you know boko haram is going to chase them around and harass them so you're you're helping guys who are like really all in and um yeah yeah just send the love because guys are asking me because i i told them i might be doing something like this and uh they're very interested so You'd help them out with with a lot of just normal daily living expenses, like buying clerical shirts, you know, uh, a meal out, which, you know, 
sounds like it isn't luxurious, but for some people it is. They're really uh, strapped. So anyway, drop me a line. Yeah, and if you want to follow him on Twitter, uh, I just put his Twitter, and it's also in the in the bio. So, uh, what what are we talking about today? Well, it all started about a year ago. I organized a, a conference here at the Angelicum for students in the theology faculty, and I I presented a paper on natural family planning and the teaching of Saint Thomas. I was doing the research for the paper, and I got you know, more and more interesting as I kind of, you know, for the first time, really, after, I don't know, about 10 years of formal education, uh, started to perceive that there was a striking difference between uh, the doctrine of the angelic doctor and the use and treatment, or I guess the treatment that the modern papal literature gives and especially the modern popular literature gives to these kinds of topics. And so I kind of kept pulling on the thread, um, you know, gave the talk. It was a little basic, but I kind of kept pulling on the thread. And um, I've got a book that I'm maybe 80% done with or so. Uh, I've been involved in some archival research on this topic in specifically the apostolic penitentiary. Um, and it's a wild world of puzzles uh interesting questions debates i kind of start with thomas around thomas um but really really get started with augustine but there's mm. not much um uh there's not too much difference in augustine's treatment and thomas's treatment of marriage and and sexuality it's not it's not really different at least but after thomas you start to see certain again you know little points that come up and people are pushing on them to such a degree where you know if you read saint thomas on you know um, the conjugal debt and then you read uh i don't know pick your your popular catholic author on sexuality uh christopher west jason everett you know one of these kinds of people uh, you you're thinking like are, are they talking about the same thing at all yeah. um they are there's a huge history, you know, if you haven't familiarized yourself with this book by John Noonan, uh, this is probably right now the magisterial history of the question of the use of marriage, you know, sexuality within marriage. It's, mm -hmm. it's not without some serious theological problems, this, this text, but Noonan is a pretty good historian, like he's done a mm -hmm. lot of research. Um, as a theologian, he's he's quite questionable, but as a researcher, he's pretty good. Um, so I guess I can just kind of lay out some of the some of the questions, some of the problems, um, or maybe start with kind of talking about what I see as the landscape yeah. of the entire question. Let let yeah, me know what yeah. you like. Before before we start, I just kind of wanted to do a little bit of a little bit of uh, autobiography myself um, because I. I have I have also latched on this problem um, and I I haven't uh, done much research because I mean, I uh, when it comes to my background, it's usually doctrine of God stuff. Uh, De Deo Uno Etrino, uh, that that's my background. Uh, so moral theology stuff is kind of for fun. Um, so when it comes to my background, uh, when, when I was getting married, uh, protestant uh we were we were married inside of a protestant church not even uh an anglican church uh, which i was attending at the time 
Uh, so when when it came to the, the the first discussions that I had with other people, uh, when it came to the discussions we had with the pastor at the time, uh, when it comes to issues of sexuality, it was uh, it was Protestant. It wasn't uh, Catholic. And once uh, once I joined the church and and spoke to people about these same issues, I was hearing the same exact stuff. Um, and, and it, it kind of confused me because I thought, uh, it, at least from uh, my acquaintance with with the angelic doctor, I thought that it was supposed to be a little bit different. Um, that like, OK, we, we kind of view chastity in a different way uh, as Catholics than Protestants do, even within marriage. But that really wasn't the case. And as as now I've uh, dove into the question for the last, uh, I'd say, year, year and a half is is uh, how, how long I've been looking at this question for. As I've been looking at this question more and more, I've realized that we, we've kind of been robbed of a lot of our uh, of our own tradition on this subject and a lot of really good stuff and a lot of stuff that makes perfect sense is uh, we kind of. Um, uh, really, really a lot of people. Uh, Tim Gordon is, is the one that uh, kind of sparked uh, this discussion between us. Uh, we uh, Hassan and I reviewed uh, some of his video last week, and uh, we, we talked about St. Thomas's teaching on this and a little bit about the, the uh, Catechism of the Council of Trent. But really, uh, I think a lot of people uh, have taken um, this Protestantized, uh, although I don't think this is uh, something that was... Um, I think the seeds of it, uh, because some of my background is in um, early Protestant theology, I think this I see the seeds there. But definitely uh, a lot of Catholics have taken this Protestantized notion of sexuality as um, as basically a false view of the relationship between nature, grace and glory is um, is it would be quite confusing to try to describe to Protestants why. Um, a sort of relegation of the passions uh, within marriage is something which is which is a good thing. Uh, they would say, uh, like like Tim Gordon said, that uh, more sex equals better. Uh, basically, that was his whole thing: is uh, just as being is better than non-being. So, more sex in marriage it's kind is of a prosperity than, gospel uh, version no sex of, of human sexuality. It, it, exactly, exactly, um, and, and I think uh, our. It, it makes sense uh, when when you look at our own uh, tradition and some of the uh, differences we have uh, when it comes to our relationship with money, our relationship with food, our really our our entire ascetical tradition. Um, a lot of a lot of married Catholics will understand the rest of the ascetical tradition, but when it comes to sexuality, all of a sudden that's just like uh, they're 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 giving very um, Protestant arguments when it comes to. Uh, how how sacred scripture will speak of sexuality and uh, how sacred scripture will speak of of chastity which chastity is um is a better gift and it's something uh, as as i was reading the catechism this morning sorry if i'm rambling a little bit but i was reading the catechism this morning actually on chastity and it, it said something really really interesting and i don't have to pull it up but it said uh something to the effect of um basically you you either are a, are a slave uh a slave to lust or you, uh, uh, or you in uh, sort of enslave it, and, and you, by the virtue of chastity, take it under control. And marriage is that uh, is a means um, in order to build the virtue of chastity. And that's something which I, I think is completely uh, missing um, from uh, from much of the modern discourse uh, surrounding sexuality, which uh, suffers from either the vice of uh, 
uh, have sex all the time or sort of the vice of, um, I guess you could say, uh, the, the sort of weird, um, like, I don't even know how to describe it, like weird uh, feminist notion of, of sexuality. I, that, that, that's really uh, a really way, weird way of putting it. But um, but but the sort of like weird. Prudishness if you don't, that's it, also... What is it? What is the phrase is if you don't if you can't love me on my worst days, then you don't deserve me on my best days. It's like that kind of attitude where you kind of yeah. have to earn earn, you know, um, you have to earn your wife, you know, um, which yeah is is really twisted yeah happy, uh, happy wife I, happy life sort of that's it yeah 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 i mean yeah, basically can just, pagan I, marriage I, minus contraception right and for the the audience we can kind of orient the discussion here a little bit the um daughters of lust which kind of seep into even just material sin you know um kind of uh even if someone's not fully responsible for understanding some of these finer points of the use of marriage, uh, there are eight of them. Four affect the intellect, four affect the will. Um, you can see in the, is it the uh, Secunda Secunde, 153, Article 5, these are blindness of mind, thoughtlessness, inconstancy, rashness, self-love, hatred of God, love of this world and abhorrence or despair of a future world so i mean i think that paints a pretty good landscape of our culture generally at least in the west mm -hmm. and you know you just kind of look out for that kind of behavior among people and you can almost be sure that there's some sixth, sixth or ninth commandment issue going on there yeah yeah it, it's um at, at least just from the sort of general experience of I, I did you uh, did you go to a, a public school or did you go to a Catholic school? I mean, I, I guess it doesn't really matter when it comes to this issue. Yeah, well, but no, every... I did not go to the school we mentioned, but I went to a public school in Ellicott City. For those in the know, uh, we used to call it uh, Yentennial or Zentennial. So it was so there were so many Asian Asian Americans, and I got a, actually an excellent public school education um you know but, it was actually uh, same with me because uh carroll county is just such like a wealthy area because we have all the dc workers uh living there yeah yeah so i so, actually uh, had a really good and rigorous high school education but right. in matters of of moral formation it was it didn't exist um but i was in high school just before things started getting really kind of weird so yeah, I, I would say uh, it, it was kind of the the same way with me when things started. Like, like it, I mean, it was a normal sort of um, lasciviousness, I guess you could say. But and then a little bit of the sort of um, homosexual stuff. But uh, it, it was it wasn't really just like transgenderism is normal or or anything like that. Like that, it, it wasn't like that. But definitely. Um, People who have uh, had um, experiences, which I'm sure it's it's literally everybody watching right now, uh, with um, with the sort of uh, mindset of of the general culture when it comes to sexuality, or even Catholic culture when it comes to sexuality, it is really destructive to the entirety of the moral life. And there's and there's a good reason for this, and, and you probably can explain this a lot better than me. But because of the way in which the the affections relate to something like sex. Uh, the the affections uh, 
that that is that is uh it it literally puts people in a in a state of of um how do i put it like like a state of insanity um i i think i, I remember reading um a quote from like virgil or something one one of the classic uh poets where where they're writing about uh the this sort of effects uh of of sexuality on people so that is that is something that can be extremely dangerous uh when it comes to uh, just just the sort of general um general abstinence uh from uh from sin be, because it really uh destroys people's self-control so it it makes perfect sense that that is something that the the, the battleground needs to needs to focus on uh something that uh, needs to be talked about um but but i guess this is kind of enough prolegomena uh, if, if you would like to continue with what you're saying yeah i mean uh, the the scripture passages that really come to mind are romans one okay mm. um paul on the on the relationship between culture and uh depravity you know um and belief in in god and recognizing god in nature um and <laughs> he's quite clear they are without excuse right um but then also it's galatians 6 8 where Paul uh, talks about if you sow in the flesh, you'll reap a harvest of corruption. If you sow in the spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. Um, that's not to say the body is bad or the pleasures are bad. My many years of Dominican education assure me that uh, the body is good um, and pleasure is good, but only if it proceeds from uh, a well-ordered will, you know, and there's... I mean, we won't get into this today, but like there's a little bit of tension actually. Pache, Garigou Lagrange, who I admire very much, but there's a little bit of real tension between uh, John of the Cross and Thomas on the use of pleasure. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll just note that and kind of leave that alone. Maybe another time mm -hmm. we could talk about that. Um, but pleasure is good, it's to be pursued uh, with right reason with right reason and actually something becomes more meritorious uh the more pleasant it is the more one delights in something provided that the act has been chosen by reason um so this this is completely against the kantian worldview right the more you suffer the better you are um the more you grit and you know grit and just push through that's what merit is it's not it's actually supposed to be an enthralling experience of loving god uh, through creation and in prayer. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, the moral life is supposed to be really, really pleasant. You know, it's, it's about happiness. Um, I guess, I guess I can lay out a couple thoughts about the general state of the literature. I mean, I'm collecting a library. I can scan, you can see some of parts of my library. This is, this is a lot of other books, but a lot of it is is my accumulation of books on the sixth commandment and marriage, uh, mm -hmm. especially popular literature. Um, I would say there may be four camps or schools today in the literature. There are people like ourselves, uh, which I guess you could say are neoclassical or neo-manualist. Um, I wouldn't say neo-Thomistic because that kind of carries its own baggage, you know, with the 19th century and then we're kind of past that moment 
And at least what I see myself as doing is trying to recover the best parts of the manualist tradition uh, in line with St. Thomas, in line with, mm -hmm. with the fathers, while not running afoul of any serious papal teaching. Um, yeah. You know, any major encyclicals, uh, any major apostolic exhortations <clears throat> insofar as they align with uh, the tradition. Okay, so that's kind of one world. On the extreme other end, you have the libertines, right? Um, some people who you know might be associated with the Pontifical Academy for Life. Um, certainly, some German intellectuals uh, mm -hmm. and figures who are kind of just saying, "Well, if it feels good, then it's good," uh, and we shouldn't judge anyone about that. Okay, so that's kind of not so serious as an intellectual movement. In the middle, um, I would say you have virtue theorists like uh i mean the exemplary example would be surveys pink airs right um sources of christian ethics and the virtue ethicists um you know they're doing good things uh but they don't always come down to explain precise questions because people want to know can you do x and yeah, what's yeah. the real explanation for why you can or why you can't? And they don't really get into those discussions so much. I wouldn't say that they're, they're, um, you know, wrong or going about things incorrectly. It's just sort of an incomplete um, project. And so too with the, the manualist project, and this is kind of why the manuals fell out of use is men in seminaries would just kind of learn formulas and depending on which manual you were using, you learned a different formula and you didn't really have much of an understanding of how virtue actually works. Um, and that's that's a problem. That's a problem. So I think the virtue ethics and manualists, you know, kind of have to work together. Um, then we come to the last school, which is the dominant school, which would be the personalists. Um, the personalist school is kind of what you get from you know someone like Christopher West, uh, anything kind of arising out of the theology of the body. Now, I can't source this, but I remember reading or being taught that uh, John Paul II was a little bit nervous about uh, publishing and actually you know delivering his catechesis on theology of the body because was kind of ambiguous and you know he didn't want to lead people into a world that you know they weren't really going to grasp so he was kind of a little bit unsure of whether he should you know do that in prudence obviously he decided to do it and i think there's good stuff there but um as i think father petrie points out in his book which i, I haven't read but i kind of know the general idea is that to read John Paul II correctly and fruitfully, you have to take Thomas for granted. And that, you know, Thomas is actually mm -hmm. behind what the pontiff is up to in that work. Um, I don't see that being taken seriously in a lot of literature. Um, it seems that whereas the conjugal act is an act inside of process, um, the personalists want to talk about an encounter. There's yeah. an encounter. And in the encounter, there are attitudes and there are, 
you know, and they'll go on with all these deepities about um, self-gift and a manifestation towards the other. And it's really hard to pin down what's right and what's wrong with that kind of language. Exactly. So uh, how, which, which school, I guess you could say, uh, when, it, when it comes to your average priest, because, um, and I guess I'll preface it with this, because I'm sure, I'm sure since you are on Twitter, you saw the whole flare up with the Catholic intimacy site stuff. Uh, well, yeah, how, how do that. we, yeah. Okay. yeah how, how do you, how do we, how do we get there? Because I mean, the, the people uh, who started the site, uh, they're taught by an FSSP priest. Uh, we would think a traditionally minded priest. So what kind of school would, would, would lead to stuff like there? How, how do we as Catholics try, like, I, I guess we could kind of put ourselves in the shoes of a Catholic who was uh, taught by a priest, uh, let's say a hundred years ago on the kind of do's and don'ts of sexuality and trying to explain to them the, the idea of a Catholic intimacy site. I, I think they would be quite confused and rightly so. So, so how do we, how do we get there um, with, with uh, having priests who would teach the, the faithful uh, these things? Yeah. I mean, the obvious, the obvious response seems to be, well, just reform the seminary education, but that's, that's not a good, that's not a good solution for multiple reasons. Um, you know, we just did a major reform of the seminaries, uh, a few years ago and we'll see how it goes, but, um, I don't think it will really, I don't think it will change much except on paper. Uh, the second problem is guys show up to teach in seminaries after, you know, their own formation and you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're just not gonna reach them really. Um, without either really strong papal teaching or some other means. Uh, they kind of have their own ideas and, you know, they're, they're going to teach what they're going to teach. So having kind of excluded that option, I would say it's precisely ministries like uh, what you're doing here. Um, because, first of all, <laughs> the shifting landscape of the church, at least in the United States and in Europe right now, is away from parishes. Okay, towards kind of movements, uh, groups, associations, um, and some of them are more intellectually minded, right? And that's fine. Mm -hmm. And I think getting more visibility to intellectual apostolates like your own is probably the best way um, because it creates a public conversation in a relatively safe way. You know, it's probably not a good idea for, for um, actually... This is a really good example of what shouldn't be done. If you go back, uh, what is it, maybe 120, 130 years ago? No, about 140 years ago. Go back and read the Acta Sancta Sedes, okay? Before it was the um, official journal of the Holy See, uh, it was Cardinal Avanzini, who was, I think, Secretary of State, who was trying to start this journal up in order to keep a record of what was happening in the Holy See. Mm -hmm. And at the time, and this is another specialty of mine we won't get into it today but the thing that was being debated was the craniotomy um and won't get into that the point is the cardinal along with several major theologians were carrying on this debate in public in what was going to be presumably the official diary of the holy see um in the master of the sacred palace 
you know, the papal theologian said, oh, your eminence, probably it's not a good idea if you want this to be the official journal of the Vatican to be carrying on theological debates. So that would be a form not to use. And maybe having, you know, bishops yell at each other in public isn't the best idea either. It's much safer for, for laity or for um, even, you know, some clerical theologians to be running more or less independent apostolates. Um, and that way it attracts, you know, a more healthy public conversation. That's my thought without too much reflection. Uh, okay. if, I could, if I could add, uh, ahead, the, the priest actually that was uh, instructing them was not FSSP. They were ICKSP, which has a lot of problems as uh, you and I have talked about, Christian. Um, so, for example, the ICKSP is known for holding YAG nights in which they hold like ballroom dances and stuff like that, which is another serious problem. Um I don't know what's up with them. Some of them tend to be really laxist on moral issues like this. Dancing, man. We don't, we yeah. don't that that's a whole that's a whole that's a whole can of worms we don't want to open up now. Well, I won't <laughs> op, I won't I won't open that up, but yeah, no, it's it's not really the FSSP that's a problem. I've noticed yeah. it's more the ICKSP. Yeah, I, I wanted to uh go back uh to a comment you made earlier uh when it comes to casuistic theology or at least the the practice of casuistry which if pe people who don't know it's, it's basically the determination of cases of conscience uh i've I, i've noticed that everybody uh there, there's sort of this innate desire i guess you could say for uh for most people towards uh the practice of casuistry they they, they really want to just uh kind of have these nice clean distinctions okay i want i want to know what the general uh, sort of judgment is uh, what's wrong? What's right? Uh, they they, they want to know that they love it until it disagrees with them. I've I've, I've and, and then all of a sudden they have a, they have a problem with casuistic theology. They 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 re it really it really is like that. Um, if you wanted to to comment on how uh, we we could kind of in some in some cases while ha certainly having that correction towards um, a a a uh, as 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 Gary Goo uh, famously comments in his brief condemnation of making uh, moral theology just a science of what to do and what not to do, rather than a, uh, a truly a science of virtue, and then having a casuistic theology sort of appended uh, to it. Uh, so, so if if you could comment uh, a bit about, uh, I, I guess uh, on the one hand, uh, how generally we could we could bring back uh the the practice on the other hand uh in the meantime kind of where we could look uh to see a good example of the practice yeah i mean so some historical background is that casuistry really took off with the jesuits in like the 17th century into the 18th century and the issue was they were getting very very lax um and uh you know in contradistinction with St. Alphonsus, who came originally from a, a background of civil law, as opposed to criminal law, not as opposed to canon law, was a civil lawyer, where, you know, you're judging cases based on their individual merits, uh, as opposed to criminal law, where it's, it's a final verdict, you're either guilty or you're not. With the civil cases, it's more, okay, well, how much money do you really owe? And let's figure mm -hmm. that out. It's a very different mindset. And it kind of got off the rails with the Jesuits a bit. I think Blaise Pascal, 
goes after them quite a bit. So that's some fun reading. Um, I'm actually, it's, I'm starting a company that will hopefully help recover some of the best of the manual tradition. Uh, I can talk about that another time. But uh, the, um, the goal is, at least on my end, is to, to produce good, good books that rescue, that go into this vast treasure trove of ideas. And on my website, you'll see there's a resource section. I'm, I've been collecting some of the, uh, the better manuals. Some of them are more obscure. Maybe we'll look at one of those um, today on, on chastity. But uh, you've just ki kind of got to do, do the hard work. I, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like a cop-out, but I don't, I don't think there's much of a shortcut for it. Um, but it has a market. And this, this is something I, I, don't, I don't quite understand is why why so few authors are trying to write manuals you know in the casuistic style it's kind of bizarre to me um yeah i don't know if that that answers the question at all but yeah i've yeah, i've noticed just myself, a lot of study and hard work yeah I, i've i've noticed myself at least once uh once i kind of started jumping into the the manualist tradition and I, uh, because I mean, God bless them. Um, but usually when, when somebody approaches me, they're like, okay, I, I want to learn about philosophy. Like, could, could you help me out? Uh, I'm struggling a bit <clears throat> with some of these concepts, with some of this terminology, how to, how to defend and, and, and back up this terminology. Uh, they, they'll approach me and they'll, they'll say, well, I, I've been trying to read Aristotle and it's not really helping me out. And uh, first, the, the, thing they, the thing that most people have to realize is that reading a classical text like, uh, let's say, Aristotle's metaphysics, if you want to learn about metaphysics, without uh, the, the blessing of the last 24, 2400, 20, uh, he was like 400 BC, right? 2500, somewhere other. The last over 2000 years of reflection of, uh, of of Christian philosophers and of the amazing uh, pedagogues, pedagogues, I guess that's how you say, pedagogues who have arisen uh, in order to put this stuff uh, into a format that's easily uh, accessible, you're going to have a very difficult time. You're going to put a lot more work in and you're not going to get much stuff out. Uh, we, 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 we really have gone past... Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of just primary source uh, analysis without any sort of further reflection, without any sort of helps. And I'll recommend them something like Father Copens. Uh, Father Copens is a favorite. Uh, he was a Jesuit, late 19th century, early 20th century. He wrote some high school textbooks when it comes to philosophy and uh, also theology. And I, and I recommend them to people and they'll read it through. Uh, it's really short, like I think. 150 200 pages for, for to read uh all of the texts and they come away with it and they're like wow that was it, it might maybe took me two or three weeks to read through this it's a manual uh it, i i had to kind of stop and think on a few points but everything makes much more sense and then when they go back to reflect on some of the primary source material they're able to get a lot more out of it they're able to have a sort of sustained reflection this is it, this really is the uh, advantage of the manuals 
is the manuals are meant to kind of take you from zero to a hundred to be able to uh, go about uh, reflecting. It, it isn't an end in itself. If you were to just sit around and read manuals all day, uh, that, that would be a bit of an issue. Um, but the, the manuals are really meant to uh, be a, a, a bridge uh, for you. And th this is why I'm also confused why, why people haven't um, taken the, uh, some of the insights uh, that have been uh, brought about in the post-conciliar church. Because there, there has been insights. We can't be uh, sectarian um, about the, the insights of the past. But they, they haven't taken this stuff and sort of synthesized them and boiled them down into um, into a sort of new synthesis, I guess you could say. It, it, pe people are really obsessed. Um, I, I think uh, Dr. Minard made a comment one time about th uh, not doing theology, but like theologianology is uh, really just repeating <laughs> historical narratives. And that, that doesn't help anybody. Uh, you're really always reading but never learning. Um, that, don't don't tell me what uh, X guy said about the Trinity. Tell me about the Trinity. Uh, that that's that's what I want to know about. Um, so I I guess uh, that that's um, sort of the way in which I look at it. Uh, do you have any comments, or do you want to do you want to move on to something else? Yeah, I mean the last kind of comment I guess is just the um, the uh, the prologue to the Summa, where Thomas talks about um, the multiplication of useless questions, articles, and arguments. <laughs> Partly also because those things that are needful for them to know are not taught according to the order of the subject matter, but according as the plan of the book might require or the occasion of the argument offer. And this brings weariness and confusion to the minds of readers. I mean, that's that's kind of that was, again, the historical problem with, you know, the manuals and seminaries was, all right, guys, here's the book, learn it and we'll move on to the next book. And. Now, what I recommend, at least for clergy, is, okay, you had your your six years of formation. Uh, you learned some basics about how the virtues work. Now get into the manuals because you'll be able to sift through particular judgments of authorities and be able to weigh them for yourself and see mm -hmm. kind of the interior logic of them. So that's my thought. Yeah, I, I think um, I had I had a thought, but I kind of lost. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, when it when it comes to the the sort of chief vice of the uh, of the sort of way in which a lot of modern theology is written, it it has a lot to do with uh, I would say a bit of an issue of um, of hubris on the part of a lot of the authors is they they really want to make their personality shine through in the work. Uh, they 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 want uh, this is something uh, in a in the article that I wrote for one Peter five on manual to manualism. Something that is so advantageous to the manualist tradition is their personality did not shine through one bit. Their uniqueness as a theologian did not shine through one bit. They were presenting the teaching of the church, the teaching of the theologians, and really uh, you would very briefly uh, teach um, minor theological opinions in, in a in a in a footnote or in a, um, in, in a, in, um, uh, scolium, uh, of, of some sort. Uh, it, it wasn't right. something that was, okay, here's my little pet theory. I'm going to make it a main subject in this book. Like, no, you're teaching seminarians. They need to know the teaching of the church. They need to know the, the, the teaching of the theological school that you're coming from. They don't, they don't need to know stuff about yourself. Uh, this isn't about you. None of this stuff is about you. Uh, but continuing, um, so what, what a lot of people are, are really 
curious about is, uh, I, I guess, the sort of way in which it was always uh, presented to me is uh, the way in which a lot of modern Catholics and Protestants are going to view chastity is you, you kind of have this race that you're running uh, from the time that you that you reach maturity to the time that you're married. You, you kind of have this race where you just kind of got to make it like you, you have to you have to fight lust. Just just don't don't have sex uh, until you're married. Just fight your way to the end. And finally, once you're married, you can just do whatever you want. And, and you finally made it. Uh, you don't have to worry about chastity anymore. You don't worry, have to worry about lust anymore. That's that's how a lot of uh, people are going to view it. But what I what I've started to do with Catholics who are interested in uh, interested in marriage uh, and will want to talk to me about these things is to tell them, no, actually, you, you have to do a significant amount of preparation when it comes to forming the virtue of chastity to be married, because in many ways, actually, marriage is a lot more difficult. Uh, the let Abraham uh, uh, St. Augustine talks about yeah. this. Abraham had it a lot more difficult than I had it. <laughs> I would not be able yeah. to be married and still keep the virtue of chastity. So if you would uh, if you would kind of talk about that idea of um, Catholics who are looking forward um, to being married and how chastity fits in with marital preparation and also uh, in the life of marriage. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the first thing is there are obviously certain objective boundaries that basically everybody agrees on. Um, you know, you've, you've got to use marriage. So when I say use marriage, I mean, that's the conjugal act. Okay. That's the traditional way to speak of it. When you use marriage it has to be open to life. Mm. Um, and unfortunately that's where a lot of the common literature kind of stops. Um, if you're not being chased in marriage, it, it's again, it's going to kind of pull down your mind. Uh, again, run through those those um, daughters of lust, right? Okay, inconstancy, rashness, uh, thoughtlessness, um, love of this world, and how many marriages are affected by those kinds of things that end up causing marriage to fall apart. So the real, you know, the real uh, value uh, of chastity is that it's going to safeguard your marriage for what it is, right? So it's a covenant. Uh, which lasts until death. Okay. Um, so chastity is the best investment you can make for a healthy marriage. Uh, at least it's what it's up there, <laughs> you know, um, I guess also, yeah, I mean this, it's not quite libertine to say one rule and maybe we can come to the Gregory Popchak world of, of moral theology in in a moment. Um, it's, it's not enough to say there's one rule. Uh, a lot of the personalists will say, well, you have to be respectful, you know, of, of your spouse's desires and wishes. And that's true, too. Um, but in line with what, you know, Tim Gordon was talking about, albeit somewhat ham-fistedly, you also owe your spouse your, your body. Uh, yes. You sign up for that when you get married. Now, there are abuses which can happen, but... Um, you also are giving away yourself quite profoundly in marriage. And I think a lot of people don't quite realize that. Um, they think of marriage as a, as a self-determination project or a co-determination project. Actually, it's throwing yourself into the power of your spouse. Um, and you figure it out together and there are ways to be reasonable and unreasonable, but 
the end of the day, you know, go read First uh, Corinthians, what, six or seven, um, where Paul talks about the marital debt. You know, that that I think has to be recovered even in marriage prep, which I don't think it's touched essentially at all in any parish mm. that I'm familiar with, any diocese. Basically, it's it's forgotten, you know, and I really think uh, <laughs> I think an engaged couple that breaks up when they hear that good for them because they were heading for trouble. Yeah, I, I think um, at least coming coming from like the Tim Gordon uh, crowd, which it's a correction of, a, of something which is a vice. But I, I think in some areas, an overcorrection, because I, I mean, obviously, I. I have I have no qualms when it comes to talking about the marital debt or when it comes to talking about uh, authority and submission or anything like that. I, I I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, obviously, sure. I'm, I'm in accordance with the the traditional teaching of the theologians with sacred scripture and with natural law. Uh, this isn't actually even a, a case of uh, necessarily divine revelation. But uh, really, what you have uh, that they they sort of view um, chastity as kind of the old uh, the old joke about the the wife who has a headache uh, all the time and, and the husband who is uh, basically being perpetually um, demeaned when it comes to his sexual life. And it's really uh, for them either what they described, uh, sex is better than non-sex, or it's uh, husband is uh, basically a unfulfilled uh, loser who is uh, in constant perpetual slavery um, to uh, as uh, as Augustine says, the the slavery uh, to the woman is the worst kind of slavery. Like, <laughs> like that that's that sort of uh, <laughs> that 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 sort of mindset. So there's there's no there's no like tertium quid uh, f for them. There's no like middle of of marital chastity that is that is consciously seeking uh, virtue. So yeah. I, I think that's I think that's the 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 issue uh, really is is we don't really have any examples um uh for, for us to look at and if you look a hundred years ago and you you ask let's say um a, a catholic couple a hundred years ago which they probably wouldn't talk to the, talk about this with anybody else and i think it i, I think that's telling but ask ask a catholic couple a hundred years ago whether they are sexually fulfilled in their marriage they would probably think that is the most absurd question you've ever asked <laughs> to, to a person yeah. ever. Like, what, what, is, what do you mean sexually fulfilled? Are they yeah. fulfilling your mean? desires? What, what, what does it's, that mean? This, I think, I think is touching on kind of the central nerve of the whole thing. So first of all, for, for a little bit more historical context, I think it's really helpful, actually. Um, I push the, the marker there back to about 200 years. Um, it's in the middle of the 19th century when a lot of these questions start to explode, especially in France. Okay, you have this guy, Félix Pouchet, who essentially uh, in 1845 uh, discovers how pregnancy actually happens. Prior to 1845, we still didn't really know, which sounds kind of shocking, but uh, 1844, no one really knew how pregnancy happened. I mean, obviously they know, they know how to, you know, acquire uh, or achieve pregnancy, but yeah. the biology of it uh, was not understood. And so that's why prior to late 19th century, mid to late 19th century, there's not a single discussion of periodic continence uh, or NFP being used for avoiding pregnancy. 
which when you consider it is actually mind-boggling um, that for thousands of years, not just in the Judeo-Christian world, but anywhere, apparently nobody with paper picked up on the fact that you can avoid pregnancy if you only use marriage at certain times. Just It just didn't get written down by anyone, uh, which I think reveals something pretty profound about how marriage has been treated throughout world history and how pregnancy has been treated throughout world history. Nobody, nobody, and correct me if I'm wrong, but to my knowledge, nobody before the mid-19th century talks about using periodic continence to avoid pregnancy. They didn't even notice the pattern. Um, so that's one point. The next point is, you know, I mean, I can kind of get into the work I'm doing on NFP, if you like, um, uh, because we were talking about, um, uh, yeah, the, um, oh, the, the, like the value of, of chastity in marriage in, in general, um, and what people understand marriage to be. Right. I think the, the romance qua marriage, you know, the two are kind of put together is somewhat of a learned behavior. Uh, also possibly caught up with one particular French moralist, uh, Guri, who is, I would say the great at the, um, He's the grandfather of the personalists. I'd actually say Thomas Sanchez is the great grandfather, but that's another discussion for another time. But Guri is the first one who talks about um, affection or love being a, a legitimate motive to use marriage. Before that, you get hints and you know uh, some implications towards that position. But prior to Guri, and I think it's, what, 1852, and then the more significant edition comes out in 1874, there's nobody who says that. I mean, and we can make jokes about the French and romance, and I appreciate that. Uh, but it's kind of mind-boggling. I mean, it's really shocking. So, I don't know, you can react to that. Yeah, I, I actually wasn't really aware of that. I know, um, like periodic, um, non-use, uh, times was something that was widely, widely, widely practiced as a spiritual discipline, mm -hmm. um, yeah. on, on certain, uh, Wednesdays and Fridays during Lent, during sure. Advent vigils of, of holy days, it would, it would kind of be like uh, the similar idea to the, the fasting calendar. Uh, there, there was sure. a certain uh, in certain areas. Actually, I was I was reading an interesting uh, historical work about this. Can't remember the title off the top of my head, but in certain areas, there there was actually like legitimately three hundred days out of the year were, were were these type of days. So, yeah. uh, because I I mean, if you're receiving communion, uh, the traditional practice, right. even in the even in the Roman rite, is three days. So right. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, and then yeah, also you're giving your, if you're if you're unclean. Exactly. That also Wednesdays uh, was another popular day, feast days, uh, uh, Advent, Lent. So you, so you can imagine that very many days of the year were, were days not to have relations. And we, right. uh, in the fact that we're shocked by that should really say something. The fact that we're yes. like, how, how, do people, uh, how do people remain chased that many days of the year? Well, that, uh, yeah. you, you kind of told on yourself, I guess, by that. Um, right. Be, because th this shouldn't be a shock to us uh, that that people uh, historically, the Catholics historically, 
have recognized the the power that sexuality can have over the entirety of the moral life, the, the daughters of lust uh, that pervade um, the, the lives of Catholics, uh, really. And the fact that people uh, will, will will recognize, on the one hand, the, the power of fasting from food. They'll say, OK, right. I, wow, I, I'm, I'm feeling so great uh, from from fasting from food. It makes it a lot easier to focus on prayer to to, yep. to to focus uh throughout my my day whatever it may be but then they, they don't apply that uh the, the yeah. next step to to something which is yeah. even more powerful uh, when it comes to to drawing the affection so you can you can comment yeah. on it's you it's that. the sexual it's the sexual version of of obesity that we're dealing with you know uh it's 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 uh it's a serious affliction i have the text oh where is it anyway it's it's available online it's a shockingly um lucid and deep study of many many civilizations throughout time and their treatment of human sexuality <clears throat> it's called sex and culture by jd unwin he was a british anthropologist uh, i think at oxford then at cambridge and he was he was wasn't a believer he didn't kind of go in like looking to prove you know the christian doctrine on chastity is is good he just sort of started with a question What's the relationship between uh, cultural dominance and marriage? And he found by looking at, you know, ancient African, Asian, European cultures, everywhere he looked, he noticed a pretty precise pattern, didn't find a counterexample. And that was that within three generations, a significant um, diminution of discipline towards marriage or increase of discipline towards marriage and chastity uh, would have a an effect on that culture's dominance and creativity. You know, if, if you treat chastity more seriously, your culture is going to expand and become dominant. And as you start to treat chastity less seriously, you're going to decline, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, the example that I'm, I'm thinking of is, is the intermarrying of the Roman patrician class with, with the plebs, you know, the plebeians and the kind of uh, disconnect that that caused in ancient Roman culture that sort of occasions um, the cultural downfall, uh, which then allows for the invasion of, you know, of the city and all of this. But yeah, I mean, I guess we're testing that right now uh, in the West. And if you look, the sexual revolution started about three generations ago and now we're talking about men becoming women and you know it's proven i mean we just tested the hypothesis it's it's correct so so what so. what would you i mean a lot of these basically uh, a lot of the modern scholars uh, on this will say okay well here here were the rules that the church gave here are the rules that were given uh, as general uh, devotional practice but i mean people back then they they were just as uh, sort of uh, sensual as we are. Uh, nobody really followed the rules and, and so on and so forth. So what, what would you uh, say, at least from a historical perspective, if, you, uh, if you've looked into this at all, uh, to sort of that objection that we, we've made these rules, but they've never stuck in the, in the history of mankind. We're kind of just freeing ourselves to do what everybody was doing all along. Yeah, so I've been going through, I, I'm, I'm doing archival studies in, in various archives here in Rome. I've been looking through 
recently the um, Doctrine of Faith archives, and they have a volume. You know, it's a series of volumes of like cases of oh, um, what is the volume called? It's like rape, sodomy, polygamy, and incest. And you would think that that it would be a much larger series of texts than it is you know it's like okay in 1685 in naples this guy did that and then this was done in response okay uh, obviously the sixth commandment has been an issue throughout time but i think to paint a picture that everyone in history was like ourselves is 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 foolish and i return to the point about um not noticing that women don't get pregnant at certain times. We just we just didn't know until the mid nineteenth century. How how is that the case? If um, everyone's been treating marriage the way that we treat marriage now, um, and of course there's the issues of, of of contraceptives and and other abuses like this. You know that That's that is certainly that is really interesting. World. Yeah, it is really interesting that. Um... Because I mean, if if kind of we we had our uh, if everybody treated marriage like modern Catholics uh, ordinarily uh, treat marriage, and we'll be very open about talking about how they treat marriage, which I think is just disgusting. Um, mm -hmm. that, then then they would have they would pick up relatively quickly uh, on on the fact that okay, this time of the month uh, I get pregnant, this time of the month I don't get pregnant. That, that's actually. Mm -hmm. It's actually really crazy uh, now that I think about yeah. it. I mean, I can I can think of like uh, Aquinas. And, well, I think I was reading uh, pseudo uh, Albertus Magnus um, and his uh, writing on the secrets of women, which which was a very fascinating read. Um, I, I was reading it, and there there was they they would talk about uh, how the moon uh, and various uh, astrological uh, phenomena would affect. Uh, con uh, would affect conception, but you know, I've I've never thought about how weird it was that they never spoke about uh, never spoke about this issue. It's crazy. Never. It's it's shocking. I, I just realized this a few days ago, and um, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty out of control. Uh, I mean, so in the Apostolic Penitentiary, I found, and this is this is great so to kind of clarify. You know, using periodic continence to avoid pregnancy can be legitimate. Um, and I can kind of give an analogy. Um, and this okay, would line up with the three, the three. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. So no is the answer. Um, not against natural family planning, especially to have children, but also to avoid having children. Um, at least I speak for myself. So the text the main text that I found in the Apostolic Penitentiary, um, and if if you're not aware, there were three major declarations on this issue from the Apostolic, then called the Sacred Penitentiary, which deals with, among other things, certain issues that come up in confession, and they sometimes will, you know, give a ruling on, you know, a particular question. And this issue was coming up in France, okay? Um, because this, this theory of, you know, agenesis, you know, whatever was coming up, uh, and then all of a sudden, all the Catholics in France wanted to know, can we simply abstain from relations on those days uh, and, you know, intend not to have children the other days when we're using marriage? 
And this connects with a much larger debate about solum voluptatum, okay, the use of pleasure alone. There's this condemnation back in uh, 1679 by Innocent XI, which maybe we won't have time to get into today. It's a fascinating history of how the Spanish kind of tried to get around this and say, well, pleasure alone, like, what do you mean? Um, but the French, the French bishops were always kind of, if I remember correctly, pushing for the more uh, rigorous line. Basically, the sacred penitentiary um, slowly approaches the doctrine that we kind of have today in the papal literature. The big one comes in 1880, and <laughs> in true Roman fashion, it took them about four years to uh, draft this decision. But I've acquired the text of the notes of who was the theological consultant at the time, uh, who was, you know, essentially saying, all right, here's my, my thought and my rationale for it. And I have the notes, I mean, not the physical copy, but in the book that I'm, I'm releasing, hopefully, you know, sometime this year, this will be in the index or in the appendix. So you can take a look at all the, all the text, a couple of other materials. Um, there's some really interesting letters, uh, from Paul, the team on Ogino Knaus. Um, basically the sacred penitentiary says, yes, you can use periodic continence to avoid having children. And the guy who writes these notes is Father Andreas Steinhuber, SJ. And Father Steinhuber later becomes Cardinal Steinhuber. And uh, for any of your friends who say NFP is modernist, Steinhuber is the guy who was the ghost writer for Pashendi. Um, <laughs> so it's it's not a modernist thing. Uh, it's an I don't application that, of... Yeah, so it's an application of some principles that have kind of been um, simmering, you know, um, in in the classical literature for a while that then get applied to the case of uh, periodic continence to avoid children. Now, my analogy that I use um, is uh, broad mental reservation. Okay, so a broad mental reservation is when you say something true to someone but you're trying to deceive them by saying that true thing, right? So I think the example that um, gets used a lot is with uh, Athanasius. I think it's Athanasius when he's running away uh, and he goes onto a boat and, you know, as, as the people who are chasing him uh, find the boat and they ask the people on the boats, oh, do you know where Athanasius is? We're looking for him. And the people on the boat who are protecting him say, oh, yes. If you keep going, you'll find him. And so they say, oh, all right, great. And so they go back onto the riverbank and keep running, right? Now, um, clearly, uh, the sailors didn't lie because they said something true. Uh, but they also were trying to deceive these people. Now, in order to use a broad mental reservation correctly and legitimately, you need two things. First you have to be able uh, to justify why you're being deceitful. You know, if your mother asks, did you take out the trash? Uh, you know, you've got to just give a plain answer. You, you can't uh, walk around the question, you know, my brother's trash, I took him out. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, then the other, the other thing is you have to have a legitimate reason to speak to begin with. Otherwise it's idle speech, right? Um, so maybe being silent is better. Uh, and maybe you're in a conversation you have no business being in, 
right? And here's where those analogies, you know, really help uh, to use marriage without any artificial contraceptive is a use of marriage, which is open to life, right? And this is, this is very much in line with Alphonsus. I, I can go through all the documents, maybe not today, but another time, perhaps, uh, you don't have to want to have children. You can even intend not to have children in a certain act. So there's your, you know, deceit. And why is, why are you not wanting children? Well, that's its own conversation about just motives for avoiding having children. I would propose there's a good analogy with St. Thomas's doctrine on almsgiving and moving one down uh, social class or economic class. And he has a whole treatment of this. So does Alphonsus, if I recall. And then, you know, this is kind of the way that it's treated classically. Okay. Almsgiving is, is good up to a certain degree, but if you do it too much, it's actually bad. Like you're going to ruin your life and because you don't know how to live as someone in a different class, you know, anyway, that's one discussion. What we're really interested in is idle speech. Why are you using marriage to begin with? Right. The classical and Alphonsian uh, explanation is, is one which I've taken as my own, which is it's not okay just for the sake of recreation. And this kind of speaks to Innocent XI's combination, which is what I think he really has in mind, even though he doesn't say it precisely as clearly as we would have hoped, uh, allowing space for all kinds of, you know, workarounds and loopholes. But it, it's legitimate as long as it's for the relief of a movement of concupiscence, which can't otherwise be relieved. Okay. So if you can go out for a walk or you can, you know, watch a movie or you can have a nice conversation with your spouse do that instead because you retain these your faculties um you know you're still uh, fully engaged in the life of virtue you're not spending the reason i have to tell you this story because i i had a an article version of this this book you know uh, some some time ago and i submitted it to a rather liberal journal i won't get into why i submitted to them but i did and the response came back no Basically, they didn't like the idea that I was taking St. Thomas seriously. Um, but Many such one of them suggested, uh, well, the loss of reason during, you know, a conjugal act. Well, you might want to look at like modern neuroscience and, you know, like some authors might disagree with this. And there's, you know, a discussion about whether that's true. And my humble observation as a, a single unmarried man is that if you're not inhibiting your reason during the conjugal act, you're doing it wrong. Um, you know, that's, it's just, it's just the case that extreme pleasure or extreme pain affects the mind in a way that makes the life of virtue in that moment impossible. Right. Like um, it's pe people cope. No, so pain hard. is different. Pain like, is slightly different. If, if you're, if you're, seriously going to look me in the eye and tell me that the the conjugal act uh you're, you're able to completely engage uh in in proper reasoning like have have you ever like thought about like the stupidity that people have uh when it comes to uh the the um demon of lust taking taking them over Be people become completely different people uh yeah, that, that uh, yeah. I just wanted to interject and say that's cope. Yeah.
speaking of demons of lust, I was going through a manual uh, the other day and he was he was very carefully distinguishing uh, that if you're visited by an angel appearing as a man versus appearing as a woman, uh, these are multiple different species that need to be confessed differently if you sexually engage with the succubus or the incubus. Um, which was, I found just deliciously uh, casuistic and, uh, you know, it's just great. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so that's kind of the basic idea. Maybe there's a way, because obviously the personalist response to um, Innocent the Eleventh is, well, it's not pleasure alone, it's the pursuit of affection. Thomas talks about the pursuit of affection, okay, in Summa Contradentilis. I think book three, chapter 123, paragraph six, if I'm not mistaken, says, of course, okay, the um, the bodily union of spouses, you know, helps to encourage uh, kind of gentle association, which we even perceive among animals, he says, okay. And for for the audience, you get, you get a lot of Thomas's really good observations on marriage in the Summa Contra Gentilis around that, that part. Um, Okay, uh, so that was clearly not, you know, uh, something that Thomas was unaware of, uh, but for him, it, it doesn't suffice, right? You know, presumably he would recommend, oh, well, why not have a nice conversation with your spouse or like go to mass or like, you know, uh, do some chores because that's probably going to be m more pleasant for your wife or for your husband than, you know, kind of papering over problems in your marriage by sleeping together when you don't really need to. Um, that's my thought. I'm actually uh, looking at the the section. You were right, it is 136, but it wasn't yes. uh, paragraph six. Unless you're not using Aquinas.cc, which if you're not using Aquinas.cc, then you're like Let in the see. Stone Age. <laughs> Let me see here. Okay, so before we continue, um, this, everybody needs to know about this. Father Thomas Gilby, uh, I was I was going through uh, some of his works while I was sick because I couldn't do anything else. And I found this wonderful, uh, quite lengthy appendix from uh, Father Gilby on the development of doctrine. And I read through it, and I'm like, wait, this is like a 60-page synopsis of Father uh, Francisco Marine Sola's position on the development of doctrine, uh, well, evolution of dogma. It's fantastic. So what did I do? I, While I was sick, I uh, retypeset it, edited it, added uh, a forward and everything, put in a bunch of notes. So if uh, this, is, this is really uh, the only widely available text on the development of doctrine uh, that I think um, that, that I think should be read as an introductory text. Um, we, we've talked with the, uh, not, not me and you, but we generally, me and you audience have talked generally about the problems that can, uh, that can occur when one is a, a sola Newman uh, guy when it comes to the development of doctrine. But this work by Father Gilby, very important. Uh, make sure you uh, check it out. Link is in the description below. Uh, because the title is very long. And what is most important about Father Gilby's work is he definitively demonstrates that this is the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas. It's it's really, really fantastic. So definitely uh, check that out. So continuing, 
Um, there, there was something, there was something else I wanted to ask. ask. Okay. Yeah. When it comes to the, when it comes to marital, uh, use, we've, we've kind of talked about, uh, recreation, which, which yes, from, from a completely practical, uh, point of view, uh, that, that is frequently what people do. They, they paper over, uh, certain problems, uh, by the, the, the marital act. And uh, you you can't really be angry at uh, one another during the marital act, so uh, might as well just in, engage in it. Uh, so we, we we've talked about that. Um, how how about uh, sort of the 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 seeking of of pleasure alone? I guess that's more of a of a basic question. Is people just want to, well? Yeah. I I just I just enjoy it. Uh, it's okay to enjoy things. So why can't I right. uh, just from that pure motive alone just because I want to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the basic, the basic response is that, you know, as, as, as Christians, we're, we're seeking union with God, not with creation. Um, and to do this, you have to have your mind elevated, which, which precludes the, um, you know, relentless pursuit of pleasures. Uh, thus the entire ascetical tradition, you know, works against that principle. The, the pursuit of pleasure alone, though, as a topic in in Sixth Commandment moral theology is really, really complex. Uh, I mean, the reactions and the run up to and the reactions to Innocent the Eleventh's uh, condemnation of that of that that uh, uh, proposition. Is, yeah, it's, it's a bit more than I'd be prepared to get into today. I mean, the major, major figures here would be guys like Thomas Sanchez with his voluminous uh work on on marriage um who kind of leaves space for this um but uh, yeah guri is the one who really comes into play le maestre le, le maestre excuse me uh le maestre is another figure um yeah i mean i think i think maybe a more concrete application is is to maybe go to the the Popchak world of theology. Um, if you're not familiar with Gregory Popchak, he's written a bit about marriage and marriage ethics uh, from the context of like a therapeutic point of view. And he has some good observations about that. You know, I think he's a professional psychotherapist or whatever, uh, but not a good theologian. Um, I can, I can assure you. Um, so basically, you know, someone like this is going to propose that, well, as long as you uh, end the marital act in the right way for the man, everything else is allowed. <laughs> like, you know, go crazy. Okay. Yeah. Now, you find various authors throughout history uh, who will agree with that position uh, in varying degrees. Okay. Um, you know, you have the Salmontichenses, you know, writing against that position, saying there are all these authors who are saying things like this, you know, they're kind of shameless and and brazen about this. And, um, you know, Alphonsus also talks about this. Uh, if I can offer another analogy, then I have maybe about 10 minutes left that I have to go. Um, let's talk about baking. This is the analogy that I use. Okay, everyone likes baking. So we're going to bake some bread. And I have my dough in the refrigerator and I decide it's time to bake bread. Okay. Well, what has to be done in order to bake bread? Well, I need to take, take the dough out and maybe it has to be kneaded a little bit. Okay. 
Maybe it's prepackaged. Maybe it's just ready to go. The oven might take a little while. You might have to preheat the oven. If your oven is old, maybe you need to like use a wrench on some pipe or something, turn the gas on, you know, whatever. Okay. But once the oven is hot and the dough has been kneaded, the dough goes into the oven. The bread is baked, the dough comes out, and the oven gets turned off. Okay. This is an act inside of a process. Okay. The dough being baked is the act. The process is preparing the dough, preparing the oven. Okay. The aberrations here are what you get in the Popchak world. Okay. And in the, the hyper personalist world, leaning towards the libertine world. Um, if you put the dough in the sink and, you know, put it in the water or you throw the dough in the trash can and you say, well, I just like that. I'm sorry, you're not baking. You're doing something else, right? Um, yeah. Same thing with if you keep the oven running after the dough has been baked. You're doing something other than baking. You're just playing with the oven now. Um, and I think that's a very helpful analogy for explaining in a common sense way what is wrong with the, uh, you know, the one rule world of personalist moral theology uh, with, you know, marital ethics. Yeah, so and, when it, when you it know, comes there's to, more to say about it. But. Yeah, when it, when it comes to the the sort of proper um, proper motives for the marital use, uh, traditionally, what, what would those be? Uh, because we've kind of ruled out uh, the others. We really haven't talked sure. uh, uh, spoken. Sure, so positive. positively, of course, having children, okay? Um, and specifically, you have to be at least implicitly wanting to offer your children to God as saints, Right. Um, otherwise, it's at least venial sin uh, to pay the marital debt if it's requested. Okay, and those two motives you get from Augustine through Thomas. You know, nobody disagrees about this, like ever. Okay, so for children and to pay the debt with Alphonsus and the bulk of of uh, writers around his time and in his mold, it's also going to include requesting the debts under you know certain conditions like. Uh, relief of concupiscence. He, Alphonsus, kind of talks about other honest extrinsic goods, mm -hmm. like, um, you know, reconciliation of, of parties or honor. Um, you know, you can go look at the precise language he uses. Um, but he also, because he's quoting Busenbaum in, in that passage, uh, which, which he's kind of just affirming, he leaves he leaves the door open for someone like Guri um, to say, oh, well, you can pursue social goods that are extrinsic, can you? Well, then why not the union of the spouses, right? And while I, I, I myself would incline against that view for reasons of kind of implied, I think the only way that you could argue for a position like that is, well, only if there's really no other way to to pursue that end, you know. Um, anyway, those would be the classical, classical correct motives for using marriage. Uh, again, keeping in mind that marriage needs an excuse or a motive because it it removes the use of reason. Just like um, you know, anesthesia requires you know a just a just motive. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have to have some legitimate some legitimate excuse to suspend the most human part of yourself, which is your reason. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess we could we could finish on a practical note. So uh, first, 
uh, when it comes to literature on this topic, because uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure once Hassan uh, gets over all the stuff he, he's doing, Hassan will definitely want to be on for for a second interview with you. I think that'd be really sure. good to have you two uh, discuss some issues. Uh, but just l- general literature on the topic. And then also when it comes to like practical advice for those who want to um, want to begin, I guess you could say, uh, the sort of road towards actually forming uh, proper because I mean you, you you I'm sure you have people uh, this people who are watching who have kind of taken the sort of libertine approach for years uh, at this point yeah and it, so it can ha- be have, a icy icy shower you know it, it, exactly so like how how exactly do you do you navigate um, like transitioning uh, I guess you could say uh, to the life of sure. trying to form the virtue of chastity sure yeah the first thing is you know like don't despair. Okay. Uh, God loves you. He wants you to love him. Um, make a good confession just because that's good to do anyway. Um, but then, you know, the thing to do is to kind of, first of all, maybe read some of the, the older authors that are available in English. Um, I would recommend McHugh and Callan. Uh, they're kind of the last great manual. Uh, they, they talk about some of these issues. Um, uh, yeah, uh, some serious self-honesty, like, w- what do I really need? Um, what's really helpful for my relationship with my spouse? Um, and what what would I not really be uncomfortable, uh, you know, standing before God explaining? You know, and, and that sounds like it can be a little Puritan or, you know, um, uh, Calvinist or, you know, whatever, Jansenist, whatever you want to call it, but it's not, it's, it's an honest inquiry into one's own conscience, uh, judging actions in light of, you know, one's own moral reasoning informed by good authors. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of it. You know, you just turn your face towards Jerusalem and get ready. Like you're just starting the journey of chastity. If you're married, you know, uh, you're entering into a new world where you have to learn new ropes. And um, also, you know, if you do kind of plunge into the older authors, some guys are going to disagree with each other. Um, they're going to have opinions that are really, really strict. Uh, and then others that are really, really loose. And I mean, you've got to kind of figure out how to read those things correctly and keep some perspective. Uh, again, Alphonsus is very helpful on the conflicted conscience. You know, go go learn Alphonsus's teaching about teachings in moral theology. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind I, of I guess my general I guess like kind of sub question uh, to that because I'm sure something because uh, a marriage takes two people uh, <laughs> or there's two people in a marriage. So oh, yeah. uh, I'm sure a lot of people who have. Uh, lived a uh, normal American uh, type marriage uh, when it comes to the approach to sexuality, their spouse probably will not be thrilled. uh, At least a lot of their spouses will probably not be thrilled about uh, having these sort of discussions. So what, what is the, um, what is the, I guess you could say, uh, how do, how do I put it? The obligation, I guess you could say, of a spouse attempting to move towards chastity when uh, their spouse just doesn't want to. Um, 
is is it is does the uh does the marital debt always need to be fulfilled in that case uh what 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 is uh because i i can just foresee that kind of being uh like half the people out there will be asking uh, oh how yeah that works. for sure yeah um so first of all whenever the debt's requested seriously and you know in a reasonable way uh you know you you, you should fulfill it like you have an mm -hmm. obligation so if you are trying to get your husband to kind of get on board uh, with, you know, Eamon Clark's neotomistic, uh, quasi-manualistic theory on natural family planning, great. Um, but also your husband is your husband. Uh, he has his rights and you have your duties towards him and vice versa. Um, so I think, I think the key is serious communication because you know to to throw down a, a thought like hey what if we don't do this in the way that we're really accustomed to like that opens a huge conversation for spouses like why like what's happening what's going on um someone has to be really careful and prudent about it uh and and always bring it back to christ it's about it's about pursuing christ and friendship with him it's not about you know my own interior feelings about about uh, our marriage or it's it's not about just conforming to some arbitrary set of rules mm -hmm. it's about what's going to help us flourish as children of god pursuing christ together in sacrament matrimony that's what I it's about you know i thought you it get was... your spouse kind of to see that that's the way to do it i thought it was funny that you you assumed i was asking about the wife uh, trying to convince her husband. Well, we always talk you, you about, said, the husband, <laughs> guys, about well, the wife, you know. Well, uh, I I think it's funny you assume that there's women watching right now. <laughs> just, Probably I can incorrect. I can assure you it's it's ninety nine. I I think I looked at my uh, my statistics. It's ninety nine point five percent male. Uh, so All right, hello so, to the, the two women out there. Yeah, the two women out there that for some reason are are watching, or the guys who are on their wives' accounts uh, right now watching, yeah. probably. So uh, is there anything uh, you would like to say before uh, we end this? Yeah, um, I mean, thanks for having me on. Happy to come back and talk about this or other things. Um, always always be looking for, for ways to pursue the positive goods of marriage. Um, you know, children uh, are obviously like the best one, but also kind of reveling in the grace of matrimony itself. Um, the sacrament is is a good of marriage right and you've been chosen by god to sanctify your spouse and your children you're a missionary in your own house like i don't think people really think about that you know you've been sent by god to this particular community um to work for them to help them get to heaven um and then just you know pursuing chastity in general i have a nice post on my my blog i think it's called practical chastity you know always always be building the discipline you know of custody of the eyes little mortifications that you can turn to in the moment like you know holding your breath like i'm having a really bad thought right now well just exhale your body's going to want to breathe very quickly and you'll forget all about that cute girl right um and then you can move on with your day things like this um really being serious about uh pursuing the virtue of chastity is very important um, and maybe we can pray with St. Augustine, but change his prayer a little bit. Lord, make me chaste right now. Um, and that's a good prayer that we can all, all pray. So, 
Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And before we go, I have, you know, I'm terrible with this, like, advertising stuff. I'm, I'm literally horrible. So, uh, everybody out there, if you need to learn Greek, uh, fluentgreeknt.com, uh, code militant, you get 20% off. Uh, I think after the 20% off, it's like 12, 13 bucks a month. Uh, it, it, it's really cool. It, uh, it, it kind of, um, uses the sort of, uh, what, what's it called when they will, um, present something to you in space repetition space repetition it uses space repetition with certain terms in order to increase your vocabulary so if you're learning greek some other way uh this is this is a wonderful tool uh to use if you want to use this on its own with a textbook wonderful tool and then also another educational research resource but this one is absolutely and utterly free new aquinas academy and sounds fancy but it's basically just fancy reading groups where we read through a lot of St. Thomas's easy works, including we'll be one day, uh, one day uh, we'll be reading through on the perfection of the spiritual life, which actually has a major section when it comes to how to form, uh, form the virtue of chastity. So uh, definitely uh, go here, go down, 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 Discord group here. If you want to donate because it's completely free, and if you out there want to become a donor to help other people uh, get these resources, definitely consider it. So that's all I have. Thank you all and God bless.